0: Latum ad hoc bondholder group reveals possible schism. IntelSat confirmation pushed to December 6th after UCC calls plan unconfirmable. Reorg publishes in-depth analysis of potential returns in Cooper Standard. Talon investors question its forward liquidity. Hello and welcome to the Reorg podcast, where we bring the latest developments in high yield to debt and bankruptcy. I'm David Zupkis. Julian Boulan will be joining me for the week in review. For this week's Deep Dive, I speak to Andy Diederich, co-head of global finance and restructuring at Sullivan & Cromwell, about his recent article in the ABI journal, Confessions of a Forum Shopper, which discusses why providing corporate debtors with flexibility and venue choice can be instrumental in executing successful reorganizations. It's Friday, December 3rd. According to sources, an ad hoc group of Latin Airlines bondholders represented by White and Case and molus may split as the debtor's first chapter 11 plan contemplates that bonds would be unimpaired and the treatment of general and secured claims would vary significantly based on whether a holder is a backstop party. The sources say that certain group members own bonds only, and some have exposure to both notes and claims, while others hold claims only, which means their interests are not entirely aligned. The ad hoc bond group's lawyer said earlier this week during a hearing that the group holds $870 million in bonds and unsecured claims in the aggregate. Ahead of a status conference on Tuesday, advisors to the ad hoc group hosted a call for its members on Monday, November 29th to discuss the debtor's plan, the sources said. The sources say that the call focused on the mechanism for the bond claims to be unimpaired, as well as different treatments of general unsecured claim holders based on what. they are a backstop party. The group also discussed ways to improve recoveries for holders of the general unsecured claims, the sources said. The treatment of the plan also drew criticism from the UCC at the Tuesday hearing on the plan. UCC counsel Alan Brilliant of Decker told the court that the UCC believes the plan is, quote, highly prejudicial to unsecured creditors, does not comply with the bankruptcy code, and is unconferable in its current form. The way that the plan allocates value between backstop and non-backstop parties is the genesis of, quote, the most serious substantive problem with the plan. Brilliant said, including, for example, whether backs-up and non-backs-up party claims should be classified together. Brilliant also criticized the debtors for not running, quote, any genuine marketing process for third-party interest in the new money investments called for by the plan, nor soliciting any potential strategic interest. Brilliant said that the unsolicited proposal from Brazilian airline Azul would provide vastly superior recoveries for unsecured creditors relative to the debtor's plan. Azul has said its proposal consists of approximately $5 billion of equity financing backstopped by certain members of an ad hoc group of LATAM creditors, without specifying which of the ad hoc creditor groups active in the LATAM bankruptcy it's referring to. Ownership of the combined company would be split under the proposal between Azul's current shareholders, LATAM creditors receiving equity for their claims, and participants in the proposed new equity financing, according to Azul.
1: The hotly contested Intelsat confirmation hearing was scheduled to begin on Thursday, December 2nd, but on Wednesday afternoon, the debtors pushed the hearing one day and on Thursday afternoon adjourned the proceedings until Monday, December 6th. The debtors did not provide any reason for the adjournments. The debtors' plan contemplates a global settlement of inter claims related to, among other things, ownership of $4.9 billion in anticipated C-band 5G-accelerated relocation payments, the value of tax attributes held by parent entities, Intelsat SA and Intelsat Investment Holding SARL, and avoidance of a 2018 tax restructuring that allocated assets among the debtors. Under the plan, creditors of the Intelsat Jackson entities, including Intelsat License LLC, which holds the debtors' licenses with the FCC, would receive the lion's share of the debtor's total enterprise value, while maintaining the ability to take advantage of the whole company's tax attributes to offset future profits. Opponents of the plan, including the convertible note holders holding claims against parent entities Intelsat SA and Intelsat Investment holding SARL and Intelsat US LLC's former C-Band Alliance partner and key competitor, SES AmeriCom, argue that the plan settlement unreasonably fails to account for the value of their debtors' claims to the accelerated relocation payments, contributions to the company's tax attributes, and claims for avoidance of the 2018 tax restructuring. On Tuesday, the Clearinghouse responsible for making the accelerated relocation payments filed a statement confirming that until Sat's Phase 1 reclamation efforts have been certified as complete, with payment awaiting delivery of funds by 5G providers.
0: Cooper Standard Management said on its third quarter call early this month that it wants to address this $250 million in 30% senior secured notes due 2024 as the notes become callable in mid-2022. Until the industry recovers, however, negative cash flow will continue to eat away at the company's liquidity, and because of commodity pressures and historical working capital trends, cash flow will likely be limited even as the industry recovers. This week, REERG published an in-depth analysis of potential returns if Cooper Standard decides to pursue debt repurchases in the open market. In addition, REERG's analysis explores whether the company should pursue debt repurchases given the uncertain environment. If you're interested in accessing REERG's in-depth coverage of Cooper Standard, please reach out to REERG's sales representative.
1: Talon Energy Supply disclosed on its third quarter conference call Thursday morning that while the company is well positioned to benefit from a surge in power prices in the PJM interconnection, liquidity has been constrained by an accompanying increase in cash collateral postings for hedge positions. The company announced a new $788 million first lien financing from Golden Tree Asset Management and Silverpoint Finance, which would be used in part to support these elevated commodity working capital requirements. The company would also use proceeds to repay a $238 million balance on Talon's revolving credit facility, which the company drew down in the third quarter as a precautionary measure against tightening liquidity. Operationally, CEO Alex Hernandez described a meaningful and rapid appreciation in natural gas and power prices since June 30th. The company's estimates for 2022 adjusted EBITDA have ranged from $550 million to $750 million, up 45% from estimates as of the second quarter. On an unhedged basis the company estimates 2022 ebitda of 600 million to 1.3 billion dollars management explained however that elevated forward prices and hedge positions associated with the increase in forward prices have required cash collateral postings as high as 439 million dollars in october and 302 million dollars currently the company did not disclose updated postings under its isdas but estimated in an appendix to its results presentation that fourth quarter ISDA postings would total $358 million, and that fourth quarter restricted cash would total $529 million. Talon's bonds fell after the call as investors questioned Talon's forward liquidity profile, according to sources. While the company projects $855 million in liquidity as of November 26th, pro forma for the new financing total projected liquidity as of the end of 2022 is just $102 million. $102 million. Based on the projections, it appears that Talon contemplates drawing an additional $106 million under the new facility in the fourth quarter to increase the total drawn to $671 million, up from the $565 million drawn as of November 26, but then expects net repayments of $274 million under the facility over the course of 2022. Talon said it expects to pay its $114 million December 15th bond maturity with cash on hand once the new facility has closed. The company also this week paid $32.9 million in coupons that were due on two series of notes. Top Red Stories this week included Amigo shares drop almost 30% after company proposes new scheme featuring equity raise or alternative wind-down scheme. Litigation coverage. Aldrich pump debtors ACC continue fight over asbestos claim estimation. Derivative standing ahead of Thursday, December 2nd hearing. GTT communications debtors receive all requested relief at uneventful second-day hearing. Smooth sailing through prepackaged cases continues. Hertz announces $2 billion share repurchase program, initially comprised of previously authorized $200 million. Now here's Jim from Houston with The Week Ahead.
2: Well, good morning all and welcome to The Week Ahead. Monday, December 6th, a long-awaited and highly contested confirmation hearing begins for Intelsat. There's also a hearing in Puerto Rico and an ACTHAR admin claims in Phase 2 confirmation hearing in Mallonkroote. Tuesday, December 7th, more Intel sat, oral rulings in Fieldwood and a BPPNA settlement and sale hearing in Lime Tree Bay. Wednesday, December 8th, Intel sat continues and there's earnings from GameStop. Thursday, December 9th, earnings from PetSmart and Hovnanian, and that'll do it for the week back to New York.
0: For this week's Deep Dive, I speak to Andy Dieterich, Co-Head of Global Finance and Restructuring at Sullivan & Cromwell, about his recent article in the ABI Journal, Confessions of a Forum Shopper, which discusses why providing corporate debtors with flexibility and venue choice can be instrumental in executing successful reorganizations. Uh, hi, welcome uh, to another Deep Dive with Reorg. This is David Zupkis, Middle Market Legal Analyst. I'm here with Andy Dieterich. Of uh, Sullivan and Cromwell, where he's the head of, um, he's the co head of global finance and restructuring. And Andy recently published a two part article on bankruptcy forum shopping in uh, the ABI Journal in September and October. And uh, Andy, thank you for coming on to talk about the article. It's a really interesting subject. Um, and, you know, we, we could just jump right into it, you know. Um, you, maybe, maybe you can help us in, for, for some of our listeners who don't know some of the finer details. Can you explain to, a little bit about how the statute allows for what people call forum shopping?
2: Th- thank you, David. Happy to be here. The venue test has two prongs. If you just read the first prong for the venue test about where a company can file for bankruptcy, you think there's only three options. The first prong says that a company can file for bankruptcy in a district where it has either its principal place of business or its domicile where it's organized, what laws it's organized under, Delaware for a Delaware corporation, for example, or where it has its principal assets. And if you just read that, you'd think, okay, for every debtor, there's three places it could file. Headquarters, where it's organized, and where it has its principal assets. But the magic in the bankruptcy code for us who file corporate groups is there's a second prong of the venue test. And it says that venue's appropriate for any company if it files where an affiliate has already filed. So this means that when you look at a U.S. corporate group or or international group that has a, a footprint in the United States, we can file in any of those jurisdictions, which meet any of the three prongs for any member of the corporate group. And that's why, for example, if you look carefully at bankruptcy filings and you pay attention to the order in which the debtors filed, you'll find, for example, when we filed, when we represented Fiat buying Chrysler and Chrysler filed, we wanted that case in New York. And so the first Chrysler affiliate, Chrysler has many different affiliates. The first Chrysler affiliate to file for bankruptcy was organized in New York. That allowed us to satisfy that test. And then all the other Chrysler affiliates satisfied the venue test for
0: the second prom. And it's funny, forum shopping is sometimes, you know, used as a pejorative term, right? But you take it as a good thing. And you say that it's, it's essential to the restructuring process, which you which. You, you take the position that that could be considered a, a controversial view. So maybe you can explain a little bit about why, why what you call principal forum shopping is overall a good thing for uh, you know, corporate debtors.
2: Well, I think you have to start with the proposition that reorganization is a good thing. And that if you're going to decide how to reorganize a company, our laws say that one person is going to be in charge of that. There's a particular entity that should be in charge of the restructuring of a corporation. And our laws say it's the corporation. Not the court not the creditors not the owners it's the corporation Uh, and so when the corporation sits down to think okay i want to restructure the law is different around the country somebody has to decide whether it's congress or the debtor or other parties where the case is filed and what law applies and these differences in the law really matter so in the article we explain some of those differences about how filings in some jurisdictions work and filing in other jurisdictions don't. But it's chiefly because of this combination of the law mattering for a restructuring. Some laws make certain types of restructurings easier and certain types of restructurings harder. Combined with the idea that our system of laws say that the person who should be driving the bus and restructuring, for better or worse, you know, is the debtor. Now, it's controversial. You said it is controversial. Um, it's controversial, I think, for a couple different reasons. One is that this word forum shopping didn't start as a bankruptcy term. It started as a term uh, in bilateral litigation. And there seems to be something wrong if you take a step back and think, here you have one party to a litigation who's picking the forum. So if you just had plaintiff and defendant with a contract dispute, dispute or something, it seems unfair to allow one of those parties to pick any jurisdiction around the country where they want to resolve the contract dispute. But bankruptcy is fundamentally different from that bilateral dispute because the party making the decision is a fiduciary for all stakeholders. And if you take the status of a debtor as fiduciary seriously, forum shopping becomes not something that's done to aid one particular party, but it's done as something to aid a reorganization, to aid everybody, right? You have to believe in that. You have to believe that's what debtors do. Hopefully debtors often do it. Maybe they do it most of the time. Do they do it all the time? I think you could ask different people with different views. But in a system that says the debtor is gonna make these determinations, uh, forum shopping, when law is diverse around the country, is, as I say in the article, often necessary to get the job done.
0: Andy, one of the criticisms that often comes up in connection with forum shopping is the burden and inconvenience it puts on employees and other parties who have a local or regional interest in the case. How would you address that criticism?
2: I think that's a really legitimate concern, and that's front of mind in my view, with Delaware and New York judges. That here are these cases all the time, and this, uh, the judges of the Secretary of Houston. Any judge, right, where you file, is going to be is going to be especially sensitive to issues of uh, the convenience of smaller creditors. But I think we have technological changes now that are long standing in our profession that make it much easier for people to participate. And the easiest way to participate in the case is by Zoom or telephone, uh, not necessarily showing up in person. So I, I think that um, to the extent People thought the point of venue was to be convenient to local creditors. I think the way the cases are being conducted now have lots of options for judges to be fair to them. I'd also say that people don't fully appreciate the sea change in bankruptcy in favor of the prepack, partly because of the big retail cases that were not good results for workers. But most of the other cases, most of the other cases, you know, the clear developing line bankruptcy, is in favor of prepackaged and prearranged cases where financial creditors are impaired, but other creditors are not. Right? When we did, um, we did California Resources, and in California Resources, our bondholders, or unsecured bondholders, recovered, I forget, six, seven, eight cents on the dollar. Over $100 million of general unsecured claims were paid in full in cash because we wanted to be quick through bankruptcy. Yeah, And I think you'll see more cases that, that do that. And I think that that's why I'm generally, although they do raise some due process concerns to think through, I'm generally in favor of, you know, the idea of speedy prepacks, because I think the more you can prepack and prearrange cases, the better it is for all the ordinary people that would otherwise be hurt by.
0: It's really a matter of like, how much you wanna pay for, you know, less execution risk. I mean, that's, in the end, that's what it comes down to.
2: You know? That's exactly right. And, you know, it, it, as a debtor that, you know, cares about what happens to, to the ordinary people caught in a bankruptcy, it gives you leverage to be able to say, listen, take care of the people and, you know, we'll get through, we'll, let's case, through case through quickly. But what we can't do is, you know, hang out in bankruptcy, you know, unnecessarily uh, and then just hand you the keys. If you want the keys so quickly, uh, pay up and make sure you protect people.
0: The article's great because you actually, you know, it's not, it's not super theoretical, right? You get into the meat and potatoes of what it actually means, right, to to access the toolbox that's available in various jurisdictions. And would you would you mind talking about some of the like important differences in jurisdictions that will ultimately like can, you know, influence where you file the case, like what you're actually sitting talking about with the client?
2: Absolutely. The one that we hit all the time is this question of contract assumption. What it really means, David, is if I have the kind of contract that I can't assign as a right under non-bankruptcy law, and the classic example here is a patent license or a government concession, some states say, okay, you can't assign it, but you can keep it. You can reorganize and you can keep your property. Other states say you can't even assume it, so you can't reorganize and keep that contract, and that can be a fatal problem. So we have one example in the article of a, of a case that was an oil and gas company with offshore leases. And this was a very California company, but we needed to move that case out of California because if we didn't move it out of California, all of those offshore oil and gas leases would have been terminable by the counterparties, even though it was a reorganization, not a sale, even though the same company was going to continue to operate the business. So that's a clear example. Another one of one of my personal favorites is severance because people don't pay a lot of attention to this. But New York has a very favorable rule for employees on severance that doesn't apply in most other jurisdictions. So in circumstances where you have to make a decision about employee severance, if you want to make the decision under a legal regime where employees uh, get their severance paid at an administrative priority, you file in New York. If your case doesn't have those kind of facts and you might need to uh, impair severance more deeply and you want it to be an unsecured pre-petition claim, you file in another jurisdiction. But there's a list of issues. Third-party releases, you know, famously with Purdue, of course, right? But third-party releases are treated differently around the country. For some cases, they're important, and you might want to file in a jurisdiction where you can get that done with a certain standard. holes are different. Um, And then, importantly, sometimes you know the answer in one jurisdiction, but you don't know it in another jurisdiction. And so you file in a jurisdiction not because... The law is better or worse in one place, but simply because the law is clearer in another place, in in one jurisdiction than it would be in another.
0: Right. You you make you actually make the excellent point that the uh, one of the what the primary driver one of the primary drivers right is predictability and you know you uh, the, the the court the courts right in Delaware, New York, um, what is it now the Eastern District of Virginia sometimes Southern District of, of Texas right give you that that predictability that people want. But, you know, I, I of course, you're, uh, you know, you're subject to whatever judge you get, right? There's different judges have uh, different views on a lot of these uh, issues, corner cases and such.
2: Well, that's certainly true. That's certainly true. Uh, the other thing that comes up often is uh, expertise. I mean, all judges are great, judge bankruptcy judges they know the bankruptcy code but sometimes you have a set of issues like oil and gas valuation for example there's some good case law about oil and gas valuation in in the southern district of texas so you kind of know how it's going to come out or it's easy to predict how it's going to come out uh there's some decent case law in new york on it too uh but if you were to file in a jurisdiction that didn't have any you would be uh in a in a situation where it might be harder to explain to stakeholders and that's an important point that people sometimes don't fully understand is that certainty is not just because the board or the owners want certainty or want to avoid risk. The certainty that that is created by these jurisdictions is often in service of financing commitments. And those financing commitments and the people providing those financing commitments want to have the certainty about case timing and case schedule. So you know, if you take a, you know, take it, I keep taking oil and gas, but take oil and gas, for example, oil and gas obviously has many companies within the industry with a highly volatile set of revenues based upon commodity prices, which are completely unpredictable. They're hedgeable, but they're not predictable in any meaningful way. Um, so the fluctuation in price can affect the value of the company. Now, how long do you need, how long do you need to get through a bankruptcy for an oil and gas company? That question can have a real impact on whether or not you can get exit financing arrangements and the cost of those exit financing arrangements. So filing in a jurisdiction that has some certainty about the case law allows you to go to the financing sources and say, listen, we're not going to be here very long. You've done it before. You've seen it. If you take that same case with an equally talented judge and equally good substantive law to a jurisdiction where you're not able to point to a string of cases, it can make those financing commitments harder to get and more expensive to get ultimately just hurting the estate.
0: Can you talk a little bit about, about how judges, right, the judge's role in ultimately deciding the, the venue issue?
2: Sure. So, you know, the article says that the debtor makes the decision because the bankruptcy code or on our bankruptcy policy determines that the debtor is you know, famously the least worst person to decide and make major decisions. The debtor can decide whether to file for bankruptcy, when to file for bankruptcy, what the nature of the case is, what the nature of the plan is who should be winners and losers in the plan of reorganization. And the decision on where to file is really just a detail of the implementation of that overall strategy. It's the tail, not the dog. But the judge has a rule, too. People forget this. But the judge always has the ability to dismiss the case. And judges do dismiss cases that are wrongly filed in front of them. Judge Whitley dismissed the Johnson & Johnson case from North Carolina because he thought venue was more appropriate in New Jersey the rule is the judge in the first forum the judge where the, the case is originally filed can make a decision on where the case whether the case should stay there or whether the case should move so there's of course a little bit people say oh well that's bad because you can pick the judge if you're the debtor and you, you 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 if you beat the creditors to the punch then that judge can make a determination whether that judge keeps the case or not. It's an interesting case. The judge is going to want to keep it. Why would the judge dismiss it somewhere else? But I think judges in my experience have actually been willing to dismiss cases that are obviously inappropriately filed in front of them. And with all the attention on the venue issue, I suspect we'll see that more and more. And I think it's a healthy thing. I think if the if a case is inappropriately in front of a judge, the judge should dismiss the case. And when you think about these two parties, now you have the debtor, filing hopefully for a healthy reason, which we've now defined as something consistent with your fiduciary duties, under the venue rules, filing in a jurisdiction. If the judge looks at that and the judge determines that the debtor is not filing here for a healthy reason, the debtor is filing here for an unhealthy reason in violation of its fiduciary duties or inconsistent with its fiduciary duties, then absolutely the judge should dismiss the case. And I think that's a very important gatekeeper function of of a bankruptcy judge. You know, we had an interesting case, David. You might a couple of years ago. We were on the fence ourselves about filing in Delaware or Oklahoma. We had an Oklahoma headquartered company that was organized in Delaware. And so we could decide Delaware or we could decide Oklahoma. For certainty purposes, when we looked at everything, because we'd never done a case before in Oklahoma, we filed in Delaware. But we waited. This is a funny story. We were ready to file and It was 4th of July weekend, and we were going to file on Friday, and our client talked us into waiting to file on Monday. Well, we waited to file on Monday, but the creditors filed an involuntary Friday. So the creditors who were Oklahoma-based filed an involuntary in Oklahoma. We filed a voluntary in Delaware, and we were going to have a venue fight. We showed up at a hearing in Delaware. We showed up at a hearing in Oklahoma. We heard the Oklahoma judge. We got immediately the sense that she knew what she was doing, and she was going to be a great judge for the case. We weighed the pros and cons, and we decided to, to continue the case in Oklahoma. And the Delaware court was perfectly fine with that. I've always had the sense that Delaware was, was ready to dismiss a case. As I said, so is New York, ready to dismiss a case that's filed in a venue that's you know, not convenient or otherwise inappropriate. So my sense is all the major jurisdictions are not going to tolerate abusive foreign shopping especially given all the recent attention on the issue. And that's a very
0: good thing. Right, another reason right, to, to keep it in place, right? Because you're like you're saying, the, the judges serve this gatekeeping function and, and they serve it well from, from uh, at least your experience.
2: I mean, it maybe it's a function of seeing, of being, well, first of all, I'm an optimist, right? I I believe most debtors are doing the right thing, most boards are doing the right things and most judges are doing the right things. Um, And I'm also, as I said before, I'm not in favor of federalizing a bunch of things unnecessarily. So I believe that it's much better for debtors to make decisions about where to file subject to the review of judges as gatekeepers with the debtors and the judges looking at the facts of each specific individual case that that system on balance will will be better than a system in which Congress dictates where every case has to be filed.
0: And that, so that leads uh, to another interesting, uh, another, another interesting question that I had for you was, you know, you, you, you talk about principled forum shopping as a, as a healthy thing, right. For the, for the corporate debtor. So what, give me a scenario where you have unprincipled, unhealthy forum shopping, something that would be you know, where legislation or some, where something like that could rein it in.
2: Well, you know, it's because to me, it is really based upon the debtor making decisions as a fiduciary. I think the definition of unhealthy forum shopping is forum shopping that occurs for a reason that is not in the best interest of the corporation. So forum shopping to protect a stakeholder other than the corporation. Forum shopping that's designed to, I don't know, you could make a sweep under the rug litigation claims against a particular person. Let's say you had a company that had big litigation claims against the board of directors. And the board of directors decided that, you know, the law in this particular place was more favorable to protecting boards of directors. And so the board of directors filed in that particular jurisdiction. And I think you also have to say, David, that that jurisdiction, filing in that jurisdiction, harmed the company in some way. So you had a jurisdiction that would otherwise be inappropriate to file, in, and yet the filing was made not in the best interest of the corporation, but in the best interest of you know, a controlling owner or, or something else. I think that legitimately, if you think about it, could be illegitimate forum shopping, just like any other decision made by the corporation, not in a good faith belief believe it's in the best interest of the corporation, but instead that's kind of a conflict of interest issue. Uh, that would you know, also be improper as, as a general corporate act. So, I think unhelpful or unhealthy forum shopping is forum shopping for conflict of interest reasons or reasons that are inappropriate for general corporate activity. And healthy forum shopping is forum shopping that's done with appropriate corporate process for a legitimate corporate reasons. Now, I will not answer particular questions on particular cases, but I think everybody can take a step back and think where people have, have criticized forum shopping. Why is the criticism coming? And Almost always, it's coming because people are saying not that the corporation has the flexibility to choose the form. They're almost always saying the corporation chose the form, not in the best interest of the corporation, but in the best interest of somebody else.
0: So you talk about what the underlying um, fiduciary duties that are that that directors and managers are looking at, and and, and you know because these these right these are the fiduciary duties are 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 coming out of state law. Although bankruptcy judges are oftentimes taking, a, right, are looking at it to see if they've been executed correctly. Um, but yeah, if you, if you could talk a little bit about that, that other layer to this, right, which is invisible, I think, to most people. David, that's a great point.
2: And embedded in the point is a principle of federalism that I think people often overlook. Bankruptcy courts are federal courts. Bankruptcy laws are federal law. But there is no general federal common law in the United States, if the most of the law is state law, and that includes the law about a fiduciary duty, there's nothing in the bankruptcy code that says, if you file for bankruptcy, this is the purpose. This is why you file. This is what you should achieve. The purpose and reason to file for bankruptcy is determined by the board under the fiduciary duties of the state of their incorporation. If you're a Delaware corporation, your North Star is shareholder value. Right, or the if you're insolvent, the value of the company. But Delaware law is built to allow directors to make decisions ultimately for the benefit of stockholders. That's not the case everywhere. Other states have different approaches. When we filed the Kodak case, Kodak was a New Jersey corporation, and that was a very difficult case. Right, giant case, industrial company needed to change, going to be facing lots of difficult decisions about shutting down different business lines. And so when we filed the case, we were really prepared for the worst. And one of the, the ways that we prepared for the wars was to remember that as a New Jersey corporation, New Jersey had what's called a constituency statute. And a constituency statute allows a board of directors to take into account more than just stockholder value, allows a board of directors to take into account the interests of employees and retirees and the community and the environment. So for the Kodak board, which always had considered those kinds of factors, When we filed for bankruptcy, we were ready, as we thought about bankruptcy plans, not just to focus on stockholder value or even enterprise value, but also to take into account these other considerations that New Jersey law allowed us to take into account. And so fiduciary duties are not not bankruptcy specific. They are originating in state law, and they come into bankruptcy. But the bankruptcy code, I think you said it earlier, uh, the bankruptcy code is a tool. And what you do with the tool. doesn't tell you what to do with the tool. It's just a tool. What tells you what to do with the tool are your, is your, are your fiduciary duties and are the laws of
0: your own state. Andy, that raises an interesting issue about how state fiduciary duty law coexists with the bankruptcy code. So could you elaborate a little bit about the interplay between the bankruptcy code and state fiduciary duty law?
2: Generally, a bankruptcy judge is going to make sure at a high level the debtor complies with their state law fiduciary duties in making decisions during the case. But the bankruptcy judge is also going to need to make sure that the test is satisfied for particular forms of relief. So for 363, like a 363 sale of a business line, for example, we would need to show not only that we've made the decision in compliance with state law, but in addition, that we've satisfied the restricted business judgment test under the bankruptcy code, or the idea that the sale is, let's call it reasonable, fair and reasonable, right? Uh, Different words can be thrown at the same question, but it's basically proving to the judge that this was a reasonable business decision. In looking at that, the judge is also going to rely somewhat on the board. But unlike a Delaware Chancery Court would do, the bankruptcy judge, because he has to approve the transaction, is going to require that the transaction, even if it complies with state fiduciary duty laws, which are quite broad, that the transaction also satisfy the judge as to the reasonableness of the sale objectively under the bankruptcy card. Does that make sense? Is that helpful? Yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah. No, you're, you're, you're right. Um, I mean, bankruptcy judges are, have a, a pretty, um, sensitive antenna when it comes to potential conflicts of interest. You know, they have a special sensitivity to that actually. And there's, there's an overlay of all, all kinds of obviously decisions like a sale, for example, right. Or any, any other kind of like,
2: Bankruptcy, but yeah, bank, we really have a remarkable, I'm not just saying this because, you know, because I'm in the business of talking to them professionally. We really have a remarkable bankruptcy bench. If you think about it in terms of international, you know, international, comparatively, internationally, we not only have the best bankruptcy law, Chapter 11, but we have a specialist bankruptcy bench that is able to address all of these difficult issues that involve state law, you know, and federal law and the ways they combine And being a bankruptcy judge is a tough job. People on the outside don't fully appreciate these two roles of a bankruptcy judge that are often fighting with each other, right? I call it the gatekeeper role and the case manager role, right? You get a case. You want the case to happen. You want the case to proceed, right? You don't want the case to sit around forever. You want to be able to facilitate a fair resolution of the case in front of you. As you debtor, we're the judge's ally in that, right? We should be transparent, we should be open, we should be fair to all stakeholders, we should be coming up with a plan of reorganization that is best for everybody taking into account state law, fiduciary duties, and all the other considerations and putting that in front of the court. You know, one role of the judge is to facilitate that process. But on the other hand, the judge is also a gatekeeper. And the judge is concerned, not just about this particular case, which is what motivates me as a debtor, the judge is also concerned about the next case and the case after that and the case after that. Mm -hmm. And most of these issues that are the really interesting bankruptcy issues are about that, that collision between those two competing needs. The need for the bankruptcy process to get the job done in a particular case in front of the court. And the need for the system to say, wait a minute, sometimes you know, even if it gets the job done, we have to say no to this, this one goes too far even if it's in the best interest of the reorganization.
0: Andy, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Um, I want to remind our listeners that your articles can be found in the September and October issues of the ABI Journal. And uh, we'd love to have you back, Andy. Now, thanks for having me, David. I really appreciate it. and Happy to be back anytime. Thank you again for listening to this Reorg Weekly Review. Find all our podcasts on the Reorg.com webinars and podcast page, as well as Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, and Amazon. Hope your families are healthy and safe. Have a great weekend and see you next Friday.